Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. Wonderful to be back here, Paul. Thank you. Uh, our guest this week on the show is the Chief Economist and Head of Fixed Income and FX Strategy at JP Morgan here in Australia. It's Sally Ald. Uh, Sally, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Um, just a quick reminder that uh, we, on November 27th, 6.30pm, we're going to be uh, live at the Ivy. Um, last time I looked, there were two tickets left, so uh, they may be gone by the time you listen to this, but uh, it'll be a great evening. Uh, we've got some of um, Australia's top economists and strategists coming along. Uh, we've got Con Michalakis, uh, who's the CIO at Statewide Super. We've got Pete Wargent from Alan Wargent, uh, Cameron Kusher from, uh, from CoreLogic, uh, we've got uh, your colleague uh, at JP Morgan, Sally, uh, Laura Fitzsimmons, uh, Joanne Masters from ANZ, and uh, this week um, I got a note from Westback saying Bill Evans is coming along. So no doubt there'll be lots to um, to talk about and there'll be plenty of insight value and a bit of fun along the way. I assume we'll be talking about the RBA quite a bit. I think we <laughs> probably will. Um, so, okay, um, let's get into the show. Um, I'm gonna st- I th- we're going to talk about uh, uh, equities first, and but we'll get to um, the outlook for currencies and bonds in the year ahead. Um, Sally uh, and her team publish a lot of great research on uh, macro picture in Australia uh, and what's happening around the world and how it affects us back here. Um, so I'm delighted to have you on the show. But let's start with this e- equity volatility that we're seeing. Um, it's very noticeable now. Um, there's been talk about all of these various catalysts sort of lining up to drag equities lower, but also make them more volatile. Um, what's your view on, on what's happening both globally and here in Australia? Yeah, so I think it's been interesting in the sense that we have had these corrections you know, through, through the year, February being the notable one, and you know, that, that resolved itself pretty quickly. It was pretty ferocious when it happened, but it didn't last for long. And you know, if you bought the dip back in February, you, you, you were pretty happy. This time around, that strategy hasn't really worked. We had a little bit of a recovery and we've, we've given back all of that and, and some. So I think it's, it's probably a, a perfect storm of things. You know, we had a good earnings season in the US. Um, you know, number of sort of positive surprises was still very, very strong. But I guess there's now a sense that growth in earnings per share or EPS as equity strategists like to call it has peaked for the cycle. So even when you look at the JP Morgan numbers, we're still forecasting very strong EPS growth next year in 2019, the issue for the market is it's lower than it was in 2018. So the absolute level is okay, but I think there's a sense that we are past the peak um, for the current cycle. So that, that's one thing I think that's making investors a little bit nervous. Um, there's also a sense, I think, that global growth has not delivered as strongly as people thought it would. And certainly at JP Morgan, there's been a lot of hand-wringing. You know, we, we have a pretty constructive set of forecasts but we've been very clear about characterising the risks of those forecasts in the last little while, very much to the downside. And you know, so I think there are, the market's not sort of comfortable with the the growth outlook. And then, really, up until the end of last week, there was this sort of nervousness that the Fed was pretty determined to take policy into restrictive territory. So equities weren't really a fan of that. And then I think you know the final thing, and this is often you know the the, the, the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back is that you had some pretty asymmetric positioning, particularly in, in some of the technology stocks. And so you put all those things together and it's hard to sort of, you know, to make a happy market or to convince people that, you know, staying overweight equities is the right thing to do. Yeah. And when you look at something like Apple, for example, Apple saying, well, you know, one of the things that got people a little bit nervous about Apple 
which is to that point, you know, that that extreme kind of positioning, you know, getting along Apple has been, uh, you know, it's the been a great trade thing for, for years and yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and now they're kind of changing the story a little bit. iPhone, which has been the big earner, they're saying that they're not going to um, publish those numbers anymore, which is always a, you know, for us as, as editors and journalists, a big focus for us is to look at those, um, uh, those sales volumes. And it's been an amazing story in terms of the velocity at which customers replace their phones and upgrade them and just been a great uh, source of revenue for for um for apple but that the, the story changing on that i think was one thing then there's um these trade tensions some regulatory risk um particularly in europe for some of the major companies facebook having some crises um so it's all become sort of very sort of interesting for those big high profile the fang stocks if you like um but i think also what's been interesting has been this has largely been a US-driven move, right? So you can see the picture that maybe there's a slightly, if you look over a three to five year, year horizon, that there's, the outlook for earnings might soften down the track. Um, Australia is looking reasonably good, um, but this is kind of washing into Australia. The, you know, the sell-offs in the US are kind of, you know, if the S&P is down, you'll see um, the ASX uh, futures down and then it'll open a, a bit lower. So what, how do you reconcile that, the, the, you, the, Australia's, the moves in Australian uh, equities following um, what seems to be largely a lot of activity centred around big stocks and, and the S&P? Yeah, I mean, we see that in all asset classes, so it would be the same in bond markets as well. If the US moves in a particular way, Australian bonds generally tend to move in the same direction as well. I guess the issue is, you know, by how much more or less do they move? And and that, I think up until the recent episode, you know, that, that was how the Australian market was viewed as quite defensive, which is that if you're in a period where equity markets are struggling and not doing well, then, you know, owning Australia was a good thing because we tended not to fall as much. I think this time around that hasn't been the case. Um, but, you know, you could put it down to, and I think this is the other sort of overarching theme that's making investors all around the world um, a bit nervous is, you know, what we call late cycle anxiety. So people are sort of sitting there saying, we've had this great run, the expansion sort of 10 years old. Um, we ended up with a global economy where the US did most of the heavy lifting, but that's the place where policy is being tightened. And so if US growth slows, then what does that mean for global growth? And if we are at the end of the cycle, do I want to be really long risky assets like equities and credit? And should I think about trimming my positions and maybe allocating some of my portfolio to more defensive assets? So I think it doesn't matter what country you're in, all investors seem to be having those sort of conversations and that seems to be front of mind. So it probably explains why there's sort of a broad synchronized thematic to what's going on in equity markets all around the world at the moment. It certainly feels a long way from the synchronized thematic of 18 months ago when it was synchronized PMI expansion. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we were sort of <laughs> spoiled in 2017 because for the first time in a long, long time, we actually had this really robust period of synchronized global growth. I think, you know, at JP Morgan, we cover 30 odd economies across the world. And, you know, at one point we had 80% of them growing above trend, which is sort of as synchronized as you get. Australia wasn't one of those at the time. But, you know, and I think the expectation was what was that would sort of continue into 2018. And as it's turned out, that has not been the case at all. So instead of sort of sitting at 80%, we're now back to sort of 55, 60% in terms of that metric. So when you think about that growth momentum coming off, I'm wondering what's driving that because this has been happening before, say, 
the trade wars, uh, these, all this trade tension really sort of came to the head to a head in the middle of the year. Um, do you think it's just just the, the cycle just getting a little bit long in the tooth? The expansion getting the global expansion getting long in the tooth, or is there something else that's dragging on? On, on well, I guess if we growth. look at it from a regional perspective, when sort of surprised on the upside in the US, like that sort of delivered stronger growth really than, than we thought. But the real disappointments come from Europe in particular, Japan to a certain extent. I mean, they've had sort of weather events going on there you know, through the middle of the year that have made getting the underlying trend in Japan a bit, a bit more difficult. But Europe's probably been the prime source of disappointment and China as well. China's slowed by more than we thought. And so when our economists look at Europe and say, well, why, why have the numbers come in below where we thought? They find it really hard to pin down a reason for that. I mean, it's not the ECB is not tightening policy in a major way. Fiscal policy is not restrictive. Euro dollars come down, so the, it's not the currency. So that, that's why I think they've been a little bit sceptical about, you know, how valid are these numbers? And they've sort of existed with this hope that in a year's time, when we look back, the numbers will have been revised up and the, and the real picture of European growth actually looks better than, than the numbers we have to date. But that's been the big source of disappointment, I think. Um, and, you know, I don't think our economists really understand why that's been the case. And China, you know, I think that economy has slowed a bit more quickly than people thought. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that's necessarily trade war related, but, you know, clearly the the sort of overarching deleveraging narrative there is one that will be a headwind to growth, all else equal. D David, um, just quickly back on the equities, uh, and I want to talk about liquidity as well, um, but just on ter in terms of that transfer from the US, in like this, the, the, the pullback, you know, the, the headlines, the big bright lights are all around the, the pullbacks in the S&P at the moment, sure. even though they're 1.52%, you know, in a given day. Um, there's nothing, there's no huge um, declines one day to the next, but it is just pulling back. So how's that spilling into Asian trade and what what, what are the effects that we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, it's just much, of, it's being mirrored by what's happening in the US, uh, obviously around the world, we've just, uh, just discussed. So uh, there's, it's hard to ascertain exactly what's going on in the United States and then you know, the flow on effects into, uh, into Asia. But obviously the whole growth thematic is something that is running globally. Uh, you know, people are obviously concerned. So a lot of those growth assets, the growth uh, linked companies have been the ones that have been hardest hit. They're also the ones that run up the hardest. Um, obviously centerpiece to the global growth story is emerging markets, particularly emerging markets in Asia. So you throw in that and you throw in also the fact that you've had a lot of central banks uh, in in Asia as well who have been having to tighten policy this year. Uh, they've had problems with their currency. Uh, so they've been basically having to go and tighten a lot of instances to go and actually support their currency. That's slowing things down as well. So I think the whole thematic about the global economy and, uh, and tighter policy globally we're seeing at the moment is obviously being felt pretty hard in Asia as well. One of the things with tighter policy, everybody talks about the liquidity reduction, right? So that's very obvious um, in terms of the assets that central banks are buying. But can I um, ask him, I'll start with you, Sally, on this. What's the transfer mechanism for just lower liquidity or liquidity reduction in, in equities markets, right? So central banks buying largely bonds um, uh, and debt. Um, but let's talk about how this transfers then into um, into equity markets and why it leads to this, this this these greater levels of volatility that we're seeing. 
I guess one way to think about it would be to say, you know, when you have central banks, you know, who've been running big QE programs and buying lots of sovereign bonds, I mean, that that effectively keeps the yield on the, those assets very low. And so that encourages people to go and seek other assets that have a better return and you know, equities would be one of those, credit might be another one. And so when that process starts to reverse, um, you know, two things happen. One is that, well, now government bonds don't look so bad relative to other asset classes. So you start to see maybe some shifts in longer term asset allocation. And I think the other thing is, is that, you know, there's a sense that when financial conditions tighten, whether that happens because the Fed's raising the funds rate or because it's shrinking the size of the balance sheet, you know, liquidity in general, which is sort of one of those amorphous things that people struggle to really define. But, you know, effectively what it means is that, you know, for a given transaction on a market, it will now influence prices more than would have been the case. So you can you know, you should expect to see volatility rise across markets because any given trade will now move markets by a little bit more than would have been the case 12 months ago. And you can get, you know, exaggerated moves in markets as, as liquidity dries up. So I think, you know, there's a number of things going on, but, you know, broadly people call this <coughs> quantitative tightening, you know, so it's, it is tightening fi financial conditions, if not in a really obvious way. I mean, it's a bit different to, you know, a central bank lifting the funds rate, which effectively, you know, is the cost of, of overnight money. It's different to that, but it sort of has a similar effect. Yeah, uh, and I think one of the things is as well, you know, kind of feeds on itself too. People go, okay, well, markets are getting volatile. I'm just going to step out. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be around in this because... Yeah, and part yeah. of it is regulatory-induced as well. So regulators have said to banks, you know, such as ourselves, you know, you can't hold as much, you know, say in the fixed income world, you can't hold as much inventory in your trading books as you used to do. So if you're a client, you're a big asset manager and you come to us and say, look, we want to sell <clears throat> all these bonds, we'll say, okay, fine, we'll make you a price and we'll buy them from you. But we can't manage that position. We pretty much have to get rid of that position straight away. So that means that liquidity is also a lot more compromised in those sort of markets than might have otherwise been the case. So that's one of the sort of, I wouldn't call it an unintended consequence, but in the, the, the post sort of financial crisis world, these are some of the things that are going to make um, turning points in the economy and turning points in markets potentially more volatile. Um, Dave, how do you see this? Um, do you think that the um, that we'll just continue this is just going to be life now or um, might we find a bottom in equities and um, you know things will settle down for a little while well for a long time it was Tina who uh, went into uh, dictated terms that there is no alternative to stocks so anyone who looked for a bit of income uh, there wasn't much opportunity out there in, uh, in sovereign debt or credit uh, particularly not in cryptocurrencies and commodities where you'd actually get a yield um, so now it's not Tina, it's, uh, I've called a poo, plenty of other opportunities. Uh, so you look at things like, uh, at the moment, uh, three-year U.S. Treasury bills are yielding higher than a vast amount of uh, U.S. S&P 500 stocks. Um, so if you're worried about the growth thematic around the world and you can get something, which an asset which is deemed to be you know, risk-free compared to things that are nowhere near what you can call risk-free, um, yes, the, uh, the general thing for me is as long as uh, this tightening occurs, uh, as long as you know, bond yields continue to go an inch higher, which is probably the likely scenario, uh, I suspect that we'll see more and more of this in the, in the future. Let me quickly ask about what might um, put a floor on this, particularly for the US market, right? So um, 
these trade tensions, I think one of the interesting things, uh, an interesting observation that I saw this week was the trade tensions and the unpredictability of some areas of policy, you know, what industry sectors might get caught up in in, in the trade battle next um, uh, is potentially restraining some business investment. Um, so uh, just indecision, something that we're very familiar with here in Australia, policy uncertainty, say, in the energy sector, um, you know, just holding back uh, um, investment, particularly CapEx, which was something that the RBA was talking about maybe four or five years ago a lot. Um, but um, maybe we're seeing something kind of echoes of that now in the US where there's you get this kind of volatile policy environment where, you know, there's been this amazing growth, a period of growth, uh, amazing period of job creation. Um, but here comes the inflation now um, and the Fed's starting to raise rates and um, then you've got this policy uncertainty and it's kind of pulling together into this little cocktail of uh, uncertainty of where things are going to go. The Fed has a little bit muddied the waters a little bit. What do you think might stabilize things? Do you think particularly an easing of the trade tensions because starting to see some um, sort of early signs maybe f between uh, Beijing and Washington that there might be some kind of rapprochement or uh, on the cards. Um, how do you think, if there was to be some kind of deal, what do you think the impact of that would be? So I think if it was meaningful, I mean, if it wasn't just, you know, some some talk that was a bit more friendly, but if it was a genuine commitment to say, okay, no more, no more tariffs, no more escalation, you know, effectively, I think that would require the Chinese to pretty much back down and do everything the US wants it to do. But if that happened, I think that would be pretty powerful for markets, especially EM assets. So, you know, if you knew that that was going to happen, then I think you'd be positioning your portfolio to be, you know, long EM equities, particularly EM Asian equities. You know, you'd be long the Chinese currency and other EM FX. So it, it could be very powerful were it to happen. Unfortunately, you know, while there's been a fair bit of chat about things getting a little bit more positive, in the view at JP Morgan is that ultimately, you know, this won't deliver anything new and we'll move into a world where the tariffs that were announced a little while ago get raised in January up to 25%. And in fact, our view at JP Morgan is that pretty much by the end of the first quarter, the US will impose tariffs of 25% on all Chinese okay. imports. Yeah. So the base case that's sort of underpinned, you know, our, our view into 2019 is actually that this thing escalates further rather than any sort of detente or right. soothing of, of, of eels. The, yeah. Of the tensions, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Dave, um, the, the political headlines, etc. cetera, uh, I think one of the things we, we've talked about before is, you know, how much, uh, how little, you know, for, for many, many years, politics wasn't really affecting markets. This has obviously changed in the last couple of years. Um, you know, what, what you hear from a politician's lips uh, can dramatically uh, affect asset prices instantaneously. Let's be honest, um, we're talking about Donald Trump here, aren't we? Well, yes, um, we are, but also from Beijing too, right? So um, from Beijing and then over in Europe, um, you know, you look at some of the British politicians and it might have an impact on financial stocks, et cetera. Mm. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But um, uh, so that has, that has, that has happened. Um, but um, do you do you see like how do you manage that as um, as an investor and you know I mean Sally said like if you knew, right? 
Um, but the thing is, nobody knows. Mm. Washington doesn't know. Beijing doesn't know where this is going to end up because yeah. um, they've both got sort of ideas of what they'd like to get out of it. But mm -hmm. the reality is it'll probably be somewhere in the middle if they ever do come to some kind of arrangement. Um, how do you think about it? Um, uh, how, do, how do you think investors can, can think about that? Well, if you're uncertain and you're not sure exactly what's going to happen, uh, I suggest that you're probably going to lighten up your positioning a little bit. Uh, there's no point going uh, all in in a particular way if you're not certain what the outcome is going to be. Um, as for what a base case is, you asked earlier on as, as to what could potentially go in and appease markets a little bit in this, uh, this you know, pockets of volatility. Um, I suspect that one big thing would be if the Fed was to go and, uh, and indicate, obviously we've heard a few uh, statements that have been slightly dovish uh, in the last week or so. Um, if they were to go and cool the rhetoric about you know, getting policy back through, uh, through, uh, through neutral levels into low and restrictive territory, which is you know, where they were initially thinking things were going to go, I suspect that would go and calm investor nerves a little bit, particularly around the growth story. Um, secondly, to, uh, to the, the China uh, story, uh, if China was to go and deliver a more powerful stimulus, and I'm not talking anything certainly around like the 2008-9 sort of model where it was as unprecedented in size, but uh, to counteract the threat of the trade war and, and escalation of the trade war, and I think most people out there still have as their base case that things are going to go and probably get a little bit worse before they get better, even with this meeting coming up at the end of November between uh, Trump and Xi. Uh, so if China was to go and stimulate uh, a little bit harder, uh, I think that would go and certainly help sentiment in EM, uh, particularly in Asia, and also in Australia, obviously, uh, if they stimulate, it's almost certainly going to be along the lines of you know, infrastructure will be involved, infrastructure requires commodities uh, that supports you know, Australia. So I suspect that that people at the moment are kind of anticipating what may or may not happen out of this meeting. Uh, so we're seeing a few moves at the moment. So you've seen dollar UN has been very steady. Uh, through all this volatility we're seeing in stocks, it's been sitting there around about you know, 6.94, just drifting around because people are just waiting to go and see. I think you've seen people are starting to go and rebalance a bit into EM. So there's lots of you know, heavy selling that we saw in recent months. Now that we've got this meeting coming up, people who may have been short, maybe just starting to go and dip the toe back in anticipation. Well, we don't think there's going to be a great outcome. We're not willing to go the whole hog and buy aggressively, but we'll, we'll go and dip our toe back in and see what happens. Um, you mentioned currencies. It's something we're going to talk about next after this short break. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here with David Scott, and our guest is Sally Old, Chief Economist and Head of Fixed Income and FX Strategy at JP Morgan. Um, Sally, uh, your team published uh, your FX outlook for the Australian dollar and the New Zealand dollar over the the um, the uh, the year ahead. Um, you got a small decline forecast in there for the Aussie. Dave just mentioned uh, uh, commodity prices there as well, obviously a factor. Um, but maybe you can talk us through the logic for um, for where you see the Aussie over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah. So. I mean, I think you should think about the currency in the broader context, which is that a couple of years ago we were at 110 versus the big dollar. Now we're at 72 and change. So we have had a pretty decent move by anyone's standards. And my sense is that, you know, the currency around 70 cents, high 60s, I think longer term global asset managers would start to look at Australian assets and say, at that level, they look cheap. So I think we're sort of close to those levels where, you know, people might perceive value coming back into owning Australian assets on an unhedged basis. Um, but we sort of start the year with familiar themes, you know, i.e. that the Fed's going to continue to, to hike rates, at least in the first half of next year. The RBA is sort of stark 
watching the housing and, and credit correction play out. So they're not going to do anything. <coughs> so rate differentials will continue to work against the current currency. The interesting thing is we look cheap relative to commodity prices at the moment. Like if that was our only benchmark for the Aussie, um, <clears throat> you know, you would say Aussie should probably be closer to 75, 76 rather than in the low 70s. The, the co commodity price has been astonishing. Uh, um, coal prices in particular... Yeah, coal and iron ore have really sort of disconnected from what base metals and industrial metals ha have done and sort of have been far less volatile, really. Um, and so, you know, maybe there's the hope that the Chinese stimulus will, will give a little bit more infrastructure spending in China. We saw that in the last set of numbers, like it feels like that story has based a bit. But, you know, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. This is going to be a pretty modest stimulus by Chinese standards, so I'm not sure that we can sort of peg too much on on that. But I think at least it's put a bit of a floor under the currency for the time being, and, you know, the currency was really the whipping boy for, you know, anyone who was worried about trade wars or slower Chinese growth or anything going wrong in this part of the world. You know, it was just, okay, sell Aussie, that's the, the go-to thing to do and and so positioning got quite extended as well people were very short the currency so it makes sense to, to see us having outperformed a little bit so when I put all that together I, I sort of feel like you know the outlook next year is for that rate spread to, to narrow a bit further commodity prices will probably come off a little bit not a lot but a little bit and you know those two things together probably mean you know a couple more cents lower on on Aussie dollar but but not a whole lot I mean having said that you know, I think the risks are probably still biased to the downside, you know, the risks around EM, which is still looking a little fragile. You know, we haven't talked much about the domestic fundamentals, but if the housing story started to move um, a little bit faster than it has been, that would probably start to get people a bit worried about what happens next. So I feel like, you know, so the way we've sort of put it together is to say, you know, in the, in the forecast track, you know, three to four cents lower over the course of the year, but the risk bias is still to the downside. Right. And um, the inflation picture then, um, so with the Aussie at, say, high 60s, mm. uh, 68, 69 cents, um, uh, obviously, and, you know, some interesting developments in the wages growth picture, but and inflation looking okay, but still core inflation below 2%. Just yeah, below two. I mean, I guess you could probably put a case together and say, look, you know, things have got a little bit more favourable for inflation. You've got the currency depreciation to come through. Um, you know, the labour market is clearly running stronger than most people thought it would be at this point in the year. So maybe that helps a little bit with with um, some wages pressure. And, you know, the economy was definitely stronger in the first half of the year than most forecasters, including ourselves, thought would be the case. So you've closed, you know, taken out some spare capacity a bit more quickly than we thought. So you put those things together and think, well, you know, that, that should, I guess, at the very least, make people comfortable with, with this idea that inflation has troughed for the cycle. Now, what's happened in oil is probably not helping inflation's cause, you know, at the moment, but, we'll, you know, it's a pretty volatile commodity, so we'll see what happens there. But, yeah, I mean, that that's sort of... And it's a similar story for wages. You know, the trough is behind us, and now it's just a question of how quickly you can get those things back to the sort of levels that would make the RBA more comfortable around hiking rates at some point. Um, when do you have, what's your base case for um, for the RBA at the we moment? We just have them on hold for the foreseeable future. Right, right. And I feel like the longer they're on hold, you know, then the more chance that the next move could be down rather than up. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, what seems to have happened over the last sort of couple of weeks of public commentary from central bank officials here is you just get a sense that some of the stuff that's playing out in housing and, and lending markets is starting just to worry them a yeah. little bit. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and who, who knows whether that's the right way to characterise it, but if all that was going on in lending markets was just simply the RBA and APRA's macro prudential rules around interest-only lending and lending to investors and the like, then I think they'd be pretty comfortable that that was still the right sort of overall setting. But on top of that, we have, you know, a broader tightening in credit conditions, which is being driven, I think, in the main by the Royal Commission. Um, and so not only is that impacting the housing market, but it's also starting to spread into into other sectors beyond housing. So small business would be one as well. And so, you know, I think this is something that those guys will be watching carefully, but it doesn't seem to me like this is going to go away anytime soon. And I think, you know, and this is always something we worried a bit about a bit with the Royal Commission is that when you sort of change incentives in banks where we've gone from a world where lending conditions were too loose, so the incentive was probably the more you lend, the more I'm going to pay you, to if you lend $1 to someone who doesn't tick every single box, cross every T and dot every I, you're fired, mm. then it's no surprise that credit dries up. And Tons, that's sort yeah. of what you know the governor alluded to in the Q&A the other night where he said, I speak to bankers and they say, I don't know how I can lend to small business and still comply with responsible lending laws. And so there's clearly a lot of sort of confusion and caution playing out in, in banks. And then, you know, what happens next is you hear bank executives say, well, we don't just want to comply with the regulations, like we want to exceed the regulations and, you know, be the good boys and girls of banking. And so you put all this stuff together and, and you, it's not surprising that, you know, it's now much more difficult to get a loan and it's probably more expensive depending on what sort of borrower you are to get one as well. Absolutely. So, mm. I'm going to ask you a question, Paul. Sure. Uh, how concerned are you that the housing market's going to go and spill over to the uh, to the broader economy? You know, there's uh, a whole lot of things that, uh, that have been said and written, uh, including by myself, with a whole lot of indicators that show that where house prices, and particularly where credit uh, credit growth uh, goes, uh, you see things like house prices, then hence uh, uh, employment, uh, consumption tends to go the same direction. Are you is this, is this time different, or do you think this is something that... Uh, as a, as a more layperson type of view, sure. what, what's, what's your view? Um, the way I think about it is uh, the impact on construction jobs. Um, so um, there is a big infrastructure pipeline. So I think there's going to be a very, very significant shedding of um, uh, construction work in Sydney and Melbourne over the next couple of years. Um, the good thing is there is a big infrastructure pipeline that's going to sap a lot of that up. Um, I think you might see... Uh, a lot of uh, movement of people over the next uh, couple of years, which is kind of going to distort housing markets and all sorts of things, just lo at a local basis, on a local basis, in a lot of places. I think the the worry is um, w if those things are sudden and you have um, see, a, a lot of the construction in Sydney is done by very very small contractors, so. Um, you know, sure you have big building firms, but they contract a out a lot of their um, a lot of their work so that when when things stop um, there's time for people to go and find other work etc where when things are problematic and this is sort of this is when I think about the um, the Irish experience a little bit and this is kind of my anchor point for it it that 
whole country shut, shut down in uh, uh, the space of two weeks. Um, all the money dried up. Um, uh, there was no more lending. Um, lots of loans got called in. Um, and uh, l- simultaneously, the entire construction industry shut down and all of those houses that were half built um, got shuttered and still some of them are are, are still there, shuttered up um, to this day. So um, that's kind of what I think would be the concerning thing. It was a very, very sudden downturn that was sudden enough that you can't, that, that all of those workers, and we're talking tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands possibly, I would say uh, six figures uh, in Sydney, um, uh, you know, who are um, connected. There's certainly um, a large six-figure uh, number of people who are connected to that market. So that's what I... Mm. Uh, but if the infrastructure pipeline can sap that up as the construction uh, activity eases off, that's... If that was to be sudden and sharp, then, um, say, for example, big apartment buildings where people had... Uh, were banking on getting the revenue and the income from that. If that was those kind of things were, and you're talking like dozens and dozens of contractors um, affected at the same time, and there was a few of those, then I think we've got a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how I think about it. The infrastructure pipeline, I think, is is vitally essential, and I think it's good that the government's um, mm. ready to. Um, spend some money um, regardless of whether or not the infrastructure is any good is, is another question yeah look i look I, i'm seeing a lot of because i live in a, a hot spot of uh, i know where a lot of uh, apartments are being built at the moment in sydney and the one thing that's like that's caught my eye is that a lot of these places obviously were, when they started construction they weren't fully sold there's nothing unusual with that but now these things are being completed and every single one has got signs saying full lease full lease full lease so they obviously haven't been able to go and clear mm. all that existing inventory uh, I know that population growth is strong and everything else, but with credit the way it is at the moment, obviously the, I think there is a risk and it's putting everything back onto the labour market to remain strong because if that was to suddenly start going weakening, then I think it would have a serious issue. So I, I think one of the things, at the moment. over the past decade, a lot of those developers, are, they are rolling in cash um, from, from the, the prices they've been able to command um, over the last mm. 10 years. So I think that a lot of them will be in pretty healthy positions, to be honest. Mm. Um, okay, we'll um, quickly talk about yield differentials. Um, it's something we've touched on before, um, but that whole thing of, say, that, you know, the, um, uh, we've got um, US 10-year bonds, right, take a benchmark, um, I think back down towards 3%, but they've been pushing 3.25. Um, Aussie ten years are what like two point seven something like that. What's the impact of that on on terms of the currency, and how does it um, how does that play into the the um, uh, what the Aussie dollar commands against the yeah? So I think the I mean, dollar, right across you, you know the yield curve now, rate differentials are, are negative. Um, <clears throat> so I mean that's a, a drag on the Aussie dollar. So it makes it very difficult to justify parking cash, you know, borrowing money in the US and parking it in Aussie dollars because you lose money on on that trade. So if, if not much changes. So, you know, holding Aussie dollars is, is now negative carry, which that in itself is a very unusual thing. That hasn't <coughs> been the case in a long, long time. So sort of felt like it was took the market a while to, to get their heads around that. But now I think people are, are quite comfortable that you know, next month the Fed funds rate will be at two and a half. We're at one and a half. So you know that rate differential at the very front end of the curve is is close to a hundred basis points. Um, but that's sort of what should happen. 
So, you know, there was a while there in FX markets where it felt like currencies had just completely disconnected from interest rate differentials and, you know, that left a lot of sort of strategists scratching their heads because that's sort of what anchors most people's fundamental models of what drives currencies over time. But slowly but surely, things seem to be aligning a bit more closely. But it, it does mean that, you know, for the Aussie dollar, it's hard to be super bullish unless you think the Fed is on the cusp of some significant change in rhetoric, i.e. they're close to saying, you know what, one more hike and we're done, for example, then mm. that would turn things pretty quickly, I think, for the Aussie dollar. Yeah. <laughs> 80 cents, here we go. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know, which would not make the RBA happy because I think they've been pretty pleased with the way the currency's performed over the course of the year and at a time when they felt a bit constrained on rates, you know, the currency's obviously been quite helpful for, for the growth story here. So, yeah, absolutely. It's come yeah. along right at the right time, the, yeah. the secret weapon for mm. for the economy. Um, so I, you mentioned the yield curve. I just want to ask you very quickly, um, so uh, one, part, of the, part of the reason for this is we get a lot of feedback from our listeners saying that I, you guys should talk more about bonds. Nobody talks about bonds. Nobody talks about um uh, rates uh, in different yeah. credit markets. <clears throat> so um, the the yield curve, um, something we've been looking at. You know whether it's a prediction or um, whether it uh, it induces um, a recession or whatever. What's your view on this? So I actually think the yield curve has very strong informational content in it. I mean, you can draw a chart that goes back thirty years, so all sorts of different cycles, which shows you that. You know, the shape of the yield curve, so that difference between, say, two-year bonds and 10-year bonds, um, you know, leads changes in the run rate of U.S. growth. So as the curve flattens, that tells you that growth will slow. And at the moment, that's exactly what it's telling you. It's telling you that the peak in U.S. growth is now behind us. And I think that's, you know, to be fair, that's the J.P. Morgan forecast as well, that that sort of really strong patch we had through the middle of the year is now over and that growth will, will gently slow from here. So... You know, every cycle, you know, back in 06, 07, when the yield curve inverted, it was like, oh, we've got a global savings glut and everyone needs to own treasuries and that's why the yield curve's really flat and it doesn't mean anything. And this time Next around, you know, the arguments yeah. are, oh, well, you know, term premiums really compressed and that's a structural thing. So the flatness of the curve today isn't doesn't really correspond to the last cycle and doesn't mean as much and... So on and so forth. So, you know, or the other other argument is, you know, Treasury's been issuing a lot of two and three year notes in, in the US and that's also sort of keeping the curve quite flat. So, you know, people will always sort of try and fit the current sort of situation to reflect what's going on with the yield curve. But I think, mm. you know, to me, you can you can argue, you know, one way or the other, but I think history tells you that there there is definitely informational content in it. So, so it's telling us yeah. now that you know U.S. growth is going to slow, and it's really a question of how quickly that happens. In our forecast, it's going to be a pretty gentle story, and you know it's, it's not going to feel too nasty. And we're still going to be at a point at the end of next year where the economy is growing above trend, only just. But so, in that view, you know the curve can. Can continue to flatten and i think on our numbers we have it inverting around the middle of next year right okay so that'll be interesting so maybe you'd have what uh, maybe a year later you'd be looking at the risk of a recession after that something like that something like that yeah, yeah. Or later. just just before the uh <coughs> 2020 uh, 20 presidential election <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah um and um i think it's interesting it's an interesting mood gauge as well so um 
So, you know, I think maybe four weeks ago, it was um, the, the 210 gap was 35 basis points. And it's coming it just things have seemed a little bit harder um, over the last couple of weeks. The, you know, there was talk that a trade deal might be in the offing. The Fed has just been a little bit more dovish. Um, uh, and you're, we're back into 26, 27 now. So it's an interesting kind of mood gauge. And I think for me, um, quite accurate, um, you know, quite a precise. Yeah, I think of, so. Yeah, like yeah. I said, I think there's there's still a lot of information value in in the slope of the yield curve. Yeah. So um, interesting and something we'll definitely keep an eye on. Okay. Um, we want to talk about property. Um, have to ask you. We ask almost everybody who comes on the show. Um, what do you think is going to happen? So we've sort of had a view for a while that you know credit growth would probably slow to around three four percent because that always seemed to be the RBA's overarching objective, which was that you know too much debt on household balance sheets, and the only way we can sort of stop that from getting worse is to either slow credit growth or to raise incomes growth, and we haven't had much success with incomes growth, so really left the RBA no other option than to to try and slow credit growth through other means than than higher rates. So. That's always been in our forecast and it feels like that story is tracking. What what's interesting is when you hear people like Shane Elliott say, Well, I think it could go to two to three percent, which is a little bit lower than we, we have in our numbers. And in that sort of world we had, you know, national property prices, which is obviously the, the sort of aggregate measure, down five percent year on year. So that was our base case scenario and has been for a while. When I think about what's played out over the, the last sort of six to twelve months, probably the risk to those forecasts are biased to the downside. So if we're going to be wrong, it's because we're probably a little bit too optimistic. And, you know, maybe we're looking at a situation where, you know, national house prices could be down sort of 5 to 10%. So that would imply bigger falls for the big cities like Sydney and, and Melbourne. It, it feels like we're more likely to go down that path than we were, you know, maybe six months ago. So... Yeah. So, so do you see? What, are you looking at fifteen, twenty percent declines in the major cities? Yeah, maybe fifteen in Sydney yeah. or something. So that means we're about halfway there at the moment. So, you know, the real question is: Does this matter for for the broader economy? I mean, that's that's sort of what's going on. So the optimists will say: yeah, well, Is it some froth coming off some yeah, asset prices? So, or so is the optimists it, yeah. would say: Well, look at the Bank of Canada. Like they're a central bank who's raised rates when house price growth has been slowing quite sharply. So just because house prices are falling doesn't mean you have to sit on your hands and do nothing. And people also say, you know, if it weren't for the dramas around Brexit, the Bank of England would also be hiking rates, and they'd be doing that into a property market that was slowing as well. So, you know, that that's the sort of optimistic view that really, outside of housing, everything else is is going pretty well. So you should focus on that and and less about the housing market. I mean, I suspect. I mean, our sense has always been that it's really the consumption story that has probably been a little bit vulnerable. And so we are looking for consumption growth to slow quite markedly next year relative to, to what we've seen so far this year. And, and that's really a story around just some of the constraints on the household balance sheet starting to bind. So the savings rate is low. So how much further does that have to fall? Probably not a lot. Credit is now more expensive. It's harder to get. So the whole leverage story is probably not going to help with consumption either. And so we're just going to move into a world where consumption growth is going to be more dictated by incomes growth rather than the ability to sort of source other other yeah. funds to, to spend. And, and if we're right on that, then that will mean that growth, overall growth will slow next year. But we don't feel like 
At the moment, we think growth will be 2.7% next year, and that's trend. So right here and now, that, that's not bad enough at all to prompt a po- policy response from the RBA. They'll just sit on their hands and do nothing in that sort of world. But it will also mean that they won't get what they want on wages and inflation either, because you know, Stevens told us a couple of nights ago, uh, not Stevens, Lowe told us a couple of nights ago, 4.5% is the, the new Nairo. That's what we've got to get to before we think we can be comfortable that wages might lift. Now we're at five. So we've still got to run this economy pretty hot to get down to four and mm. a half as well. Well, um, just uh, I saw some data during the week. I think it was Dave, you wrote about it. Uh, unemployment in New South Wales is 4.2. And 4.1. 4.1. And there's no wages growth. It's, yeah. it's probably the laggard uh, in terms yeah. of wages growth. So Has no Phillips curve there. The, yeah. the Phillips curve. Yeah, is and really that's been the experience offshore. I mean, that's what the US, I mean, they're finally starting to get some now, but they've had to push that unemployment rate so low to, yeah. to even get that. And in Europe, our guys have thrown in the towel on the Phillips curve. They've just sort of said, we thought we were going to get more core inflation this year, and we've now got to push that back a year as well. So this is sort of what the RBA is dealing with, and it feels like the experience offshore is playing out here as well. Yeah, and it's that thing of, uh, you, don't, you know, you don't know where Nairu is yeah, until you hit it. Yeah. Um, so, but if that New South Wales thing, which, and of course, New South Wales has a very particular economy. It's very, um, very, very heavily, there's a lot of services mm-hmm. businesses and sort of well-paid services businesses mm-hmm. uh, here. So it's... Um, you know, obviously, um, big healthcare um, sector. Um, you know, you but you've also got then you've got a big public sector, um, but big financial services sector too. So, all of that, uh, and they are some of the areas where there has been some um, some wages growth drag, um, even though there's a lot of job creation um, because some of the jobs are changing and the nature of some of that work is changing and. Um, I've seen, you know, you see things about just little things that kind of keep adding up until you get to this position where you can kind of see, okay, well, that kind of makes sense why we don't have wage inflation. So things like more flexibility in um, in job structures, um, people saying, well, okay, I'm happy with, you know, no pay increase, but we get Friday afternoons off, you know. You see, you hear these little stories everywhere now about um, improvements in working conditions. And that has been over the last couple of years when we've seen this period of um, waiting around for the wages growth to come along. Yeah. Oh, and we keep bringing people into the labour market as well, like, you know, both people who are here and also through immigration. Like, there's a huge amount of, uh, you know, of, of labour supply as well. And uh, from the immigration side of the story, you know, a lot of the people who are coming in are highly skilled, perfect working age, you know, prime working age people. Um, so whilst there's a lot of demand for workers, there's also you know, there's a good strong supply of highly skilled workers available. So um, in order to go and really jack up uh, you know, the wage increase uh, you know, uh, barometer, we need to go and have a lot tighter conditions. You now we're seeing in Sydney and Melbourne that Melbourne's a slightly different, uh, so Victoria's a slightly different kettle of fish to New South Wales. Um, in, in what the factors have driven their, their wages slightly higher than what, uh, what we're seeing in New South Wales. But um, if you have, you know, the current situation where wages are growing a, a bit above 2% with an unemployment rate of 4%, uh, it tells you that, uh, no, I think nationwide, you know, maybe 4.5% for Nauru is still too high an estimate. We'll find out when it actually eventually happens, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. If it happens, hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully it's something. <laughs> um, so um, just quickly, that consumption uh, picture, Sally, you said, you know, is that one of the areas that, just, just, that you'll watch really closely for signs yeah, of trouble? Yeah, it is, and... Yeah. and 
the sort of slightly frustrating thing is that we only really get the data once a quarter with the national accounts and even then it's subject to quite considerable revision so you know which sort of makes me think you know even if we did get two quarters of soft numbers I think the RBA would sit there and say we're not going to panic about that because they could get revised up as what as exactly what happened in 2017 so it all just sort of tells me that you know they're they're just going to sit there and and watch Um, and you know I think the longer that goes on the longer the global cycle is in the tooth, and you know, the more chance and the global cycle catches up with the RBA. Yeah, and, that yeah. you know, they sit out what is left of the global tightening cycle, and and the next move might have to be down rather yeah, than up. Yeah, miss their chance. It's it's a, I think it's a strong possibility. You no, know, yeah. Every person seems every forecaster you know uh, is talking about you know pushing back. You know, financial markets aren't still fully priced in, in, uh, for a full hike until the first half of 2020. Uh, an increasing number of economists are pushing back, and you think about what the world's going to look like in you know, in two years' time. I mean, I think you know if they haven't hiked by the back half of 2020, they're not hiking. Mm. I think we can kiss that story goodbye. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so and just on the Fed quickly, um, so obviously that's going to be important. They really need to nail this, right? Um, uh, if mm. the so I think you know the comments by the vice chair were dovish. Um, the problem the market has is that, as he told us on Friday night, neutral is anywhere from two and a half to three and a half. So that could mean one more hike or five more hikes. Mm-hmm. You know, which is obviously that would be a big deal for the market. So you know, I think. Their objective is to sort of get back to neutral, whether that's two and a half or maybe three. And I think we feel like, you know, the the December hike is there. The dots probably won't change, so it'll probably be still three for 2019. But what has happened is inflation has been softer in the last couple of months than than most expected. And, you know, I think there's been a sense that within central banks that, well, you know, we've had these cycles where you never got as much inflation as you thought you should, but where the, the real sort of imbalances showed up w- was in financial assets. So to the extent that, you know, equities have cooled a bit, they're off 10%, give or take, from the highs, and in the absence of sort of inflation that really matters for the Fed, there's not a hugely compelling case for them right here and now to sort of just march on into restrictive territory. And mm. starting to see signs, you know, Jobless claims are creeping up a little bit. The housing market is clearly slowing. You know, the PMIs have come off their peaks. Nothing is sort of too worrying about any of that stuff because in absolute yeah. terms... Some some big companies have some headwinds. Good. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, you, you sort of get the sense that the best is, is behind us. So, you know, every hike from here becomes a more difficult one. Like, it's really easy when you're a long way away from neutral. You don't have to think too hard about what you're doing, but the closer you get to neutral... You really know where that is and there's even more uncertainty about that in a post-crisis world because this is the first tightening cycle that that the fed has done it probably argues for them to be a bit more cautious than not but having said that you know the jp morgan forecast as it stands today is for a hike in december and then four more next year one a quarter on the view that which is punchy right yeah which is pretty punchy and nowhere near priced by markets but just on the view that even as growth slows from sort of low threes down to high ones in the US, that's still a year of above trend growth and the unemployment rate will continue to come down. And so therefore wages and inflation, you know, should should be lifting and that, that will require the Fed to, to hike. So we'll it, it's certainly going, it's going to, we'll watch it really closely. Um, and certainly um, maybe at some point next year, um, we can 
uh, we can get you back on and we can talk a, a bit about where the Fed's up to because um, I think it's been really clear what was going to happen this year. Actually, pretty remarkable how they've been able to just march through this, no problem, um, you know, relative to the experience of central banking over the last five or seven years. Uh, but uh, where, where central bank meetings were so unpredictable. Um, so um, it'll, be, uh, it'll be interesting to revisit it next year. Now, um, we talked this morning about some of the things that, we'd, um, that we do beyond uh, covering all of this stuff. Um, and you're in a book club. Mm-hmm. Um, you really enjoy it. Yeah, we've been going yeah. for oh, well over 10 years now, and I think oh, we've wow. sort of surprised ourselves with <laughs> the fact that we're, we're still still going, and you know, despite the ups and downs of everyone's lives over that period and you know, the busyness that, that people have, it's, it's lovely that people are very committed to, to still making the effort to read the book and turn up. So Is it all fiction uh, that you do? We or? have done the occasional non-fiction book, but, yeah, I think we... You know, prefer fiction nine times out of ten. Yeah. yeah, and so I thought it'd be a good. Uh, it's always a good question to ask people, and um, I think I mentioned to you. You know, the amount of times I've been surprised this year um, that I've seen people asking for book recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe reading is is great again. I don't know. Um, but uh, uh, but what would be the books that you think? Um, uh, maybe a couple of books that you think everybody should really read. Yeah, so the last book we read was Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, who I think writes for The Australian in his, his day job, yeah. which was wonderful. He's so, an amazing writer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think that'll sort of probably turn into an Australian classic at some point about a little boy and his brother growing up in the sort of mean streets of Brisbane back in the 70s and 80s. And it's, you know, it's very well written. It's a great yarn and, and it's quite uplifting as well. So... That's good. I really enjoyed that. And um, another one we read this year was Hag Seed by Margaret Abwood. So that was her take on The Tempest. So, you know, she's a wonderful author and she creates brilliant characters. And so that's a great re- That was a great read, just a good story with interesting people in it. Certainly sounds like a very good holiday reading, um, yep. you know, with some stuff to put um, put on the list. Dave, do you, what have you been into? Um Currently, I'm reading The Art of War, so uh, strategy and uh, no, having to be a bit philosophical uh, no, and piece it together. It's not, uh, not the easiest book to go and read, but uh, it makes you uh, challenges your thought process and trying to go and work backwards to see what the actual message is. So I'm, uh, I'm getting through that. Now, before that, uh, I was reading uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep. Um, sure. Yeah, so just to uh, probably reinforce my mentality, I think there's uh, was quite a lot of things that, uh, that he says, uh, no, I live by in my day-to-day life. Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe not quite as much swearing, though. <laughs> my, um, my picks are, there's a book I read, um, somebody asked me for a book recommendation this week, and <clears throat> I realized the one I always go back to is a, song, a book called The Song Lines by Bruce Chatwin. Um, which I read just before I came to Australia, like uh, 18 years ago, and it's about the Aboriginal creation myth. And uh, the story, I won't, um, oh, I won't include a spoiler by... Um, so Chatwin was a... I won't include a, a big spoiler in this, but Chatwin was a journalist, and he used to keep, keep really comprehensive notes on the um, encounters that he had with people, uh, and he would keep them in uh, moleskin notebooks and when his books became popular again uh, maybe 20 years ago that's how moleskin sort of 
reappeared in shelves and then now a, you know you can't go through an airport lounge without tripping over stands full of them um, but uh, he wrote um, a number of very good travel books um, so there was in Patagonia but then the song lines which is the story about him going to try and understand the Aboriginal uh, creation myth and it's a great guide to the to the Aboriginal creation myth and some of the um, culture in uh, some of the indigenous culture um, but he is a beautiful writer um, and the book takes an absolutely extraordinary turn about halfway through it and one of those books that you put down at the end and you're just you know thinking about it for days afterwards going gosh <laughs> why didn't anybody tell me about that you know it really is um, it's one of my real uh, real big go-to so that'll be my list uh, I reckon that's um, that's a pretty between uh, between those five titles I think you've got a pretty good um, reading list for Christmas uh, okay you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia uh, our guest this week has been the Chief Economist and Head of Fixed Income and FX Strategy at JP Morgan here in Sydney, Sally Old. Sally, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been a fascinating chat. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. You can find the show under Devils and Details on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by Darren Lake. Been here with David Scott. David, great chat. Thank you. It has been, and we'll uh, hopefully see you in person on Tuesday. That's right, uh, November 27th at the Ivy. Um, so it's going to be a packed house, uh, full night. We're looking forward to seeing you all there, having some fun. The guests have chosen the music for the night, and believe me, it's eclectic. Okay, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks.